Listener Production. Welcome to this special series of The Weekend Briefing, where I talk to some of my favourite guests, old and new, about a single fascinating subject. Over two months, you'll hear from singers, writers, models, actors and changemakers on topics as diverse as the interview subjects themselves. Today, you'll hear from our final series guest, Hannah Ferguson, on feminism. Hannah is the co-founder and CEO of Cheek Media and host of The Big Small Podcast. She's just released her first book, Bite Back, Feminism, Media, Politics and Our Power to Change It All. Hannah joined me to talk about hashtag MeToo, the politics of gender, getting cancelled and whatever happened to the girl boss. Ferguson, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Hey, and you wrote a book. I did. It's, a whole it's book. written, it's there, it's printed, it's very scary. Why is it scary? I think it's nerve-wracking because it's the first book and I don't know if I have the chops for it, but I think that I'm happy with it. You know, we're going. It's, it's out of my hands now. It's happening. It's, it's happened. Yeah. So it's out there with people and it's exciting, but I think it's normal to be nervous. I, I like having a little bit of doubt to keep pushing me. I think yeah. it's, it's healthy. Yeah. I think if you think you've got it all figured out, you probably don't, Exactly. Right? And there's something bad going to happen. Exactly. So the doubt is healthy. But let's take a broader look at this. You are the co-founder and CEO of Cheek Media, who I have been obsessed with for a very long time without knowing who the person was behind it necessarily. Um, and you're also hosting a new podcast called Big Small Talk. What kind of hole in the media landscape were you trying to fill or what problem were you trying to solve for people when you started creating this work? I actually think it has evolved into something that I didn't intend for it to be in the beginning. Like Mm. when it was founded in 2020, it was genuinely because at the time of COVID sort of becoming the biggest thing that we were talking about, I felt that there was no youth media that actually represented a serious opinion from young people. Mm. Like I felt like pedestrian, junky, punky, and even like things like Batuta that were really just the media landscape that young people were engaging with. Funny most of the time, wholesome and enjoyable to engage with, but didn't take the views of young people seriously. I was 22 when I co-founded Cheek. And at the time, BuzzFeed had fallen in Australia and I was just looking to fill some sort of gap and take young people seriously again and have our voices heard because I think there's this massive misconception that young people don't care about politics yeah. or we aren't involved and we feel excluded and that's just sort of like chicken or the egg situation. And I wanted to deliver something that actually engaged young people again and took our views seriously. But I think that when it was founded in November of 2020, it then became the next entire year was basically a Me Too broke in Australia. Yeah. Um, between, you know, Grace Tam being named Australian of the Year, Brittany Higgins bringing forward her allegations or Christian Porter being accused of a historic allegation of rape. So much happened in that year that kind of set the direction for what I wanted to do. And it was, it was in a way perfect timing because it helped, it helped me adapt to the media landscape and got me really engaged in writing in different ways that I didn't expect to. And now it's kind of an ageless thing. It's not for young people. It's actually for mm. anyone of any age group and it's trying to rebalance the scales of what the Murdoch media do often. Mm. I'm interested in how you see the progression of Me Too over the last few years because you're right, we as always, a little bit late to the party mm. <laughs> here in Australia. Um, and you sort of think back to the early days of Tarana Burke uh, founding that phrase and then Melissa Milano's famous tweet and it kind of breaking in Hollywood. And it was very much a Hollywood story. Whereas in Australia, Me Too almost became a political story in, in, in the most part. 
how do you think things have progressed since 2020? We're sort of three years on. Yeah. How are we relating to the idea now? I think it's interesting because the evolution of Me Too in Australia has seen affirmative consent laws in every jurisdiction. Um, we're also criminalising stealthing, thanks to the work of Chanel Contos, Saxon mm. Mullins on the affirmative consent campaign. There are so many advocates in the space that are doing so much work, most, most of it behind the scenes as well. What I think is interesting about Me Too here is I feel like we have these these lulls where people just are too overwhelmed. People yeah. are too overwhelmed right now to continue talking about the trial of Bruce Lerman and what happened there, even yeah. though we need to be having a national conversation about the way our criminal justice system is not fit for purpose, mm. right? And I think the way that it has evolved and the problem we're now facing is people feel so fatigued by the conversation because it doesn't feel like we're actively dismantling rape culture. It feels like we're just having the same conversations over and over again with little tangible action. Although the legislation's changing, is our public rhetoric and are our social conditions changing? That's mm. really the question now. And I think that the way that needs to happen from my perspective and the work that I'm trying to do is, how do we bring men into this conversation in ways where they want to change? Mm. Because I think that legal change is one thing, but it often takes a while for that pipeline to actually work backwards to public change and social change. And I'm interested in the social piece right now. I'm not the advocate in the criminal justice system, but I see myself as the person that's wanting to ask and talk to men about the ways they uphold and maintain rape culture. Something you said in that that, that sparked my interest is that you said talk to men about how they change. I think often when men are engaged in a conversation around rape culture, around sexual assault, um, sexual harassment and discrimination, it's often a let's talk to the good guys about the bad guys who are over there and yes. there's almost a, a sort of a, a, a false separation. How do we talk to men in a way that asks them to reflect on themselves, not just on others? For me personally, the way I see it is one of the fundamental issues in this conversation is that men see being accused as them being accused of being pure evil. Like this idea that you're either completely evil or completely good. And mm. there's like this false binary where it's like if you're accused of something, either you didn't do it and you're innocent mm. or you're guilty and you're the worst person alive. And I think that that binary does not allow for conversation and for education and for reform in our social conditions. So for me, it's about this idea of a lot of the time also, we, I think part of my problem is the way that we approach the criminal justice system means that if someone is formally accused of sexual violence in any capacity, they either see denial as their option or confession that could lead to criminal conviction. Mm. There's actually no space for mediation, for improvement, and for a dialogue that allows us to say, what does the victim survivor want from this? Yeah. Do they want this person to go to prison or do they want to reclaim their agency and have a conversation that means that person will never commit that crime again? Mm. I don't think we have any space for that conversation right now. And I think that a lot of people will find that controversial, that the idea that we could sit across the table from each other and talk. But we know that the majority of people who commit acts of sexual violence are not the dangerous alleyway men, the, the Jeffrey Dahmer, the Ted Bundy. They're people we know. They're people we love. Mm. That's the part of the conversation that I'm interested in getting to because I don't think these people are necessarily evil. I think they need to be educated. I think they need to have a different approach to sex, relationships, and the way that we talk about that together involves men doing things when no women are around, when they're talking to other men. Mm. It involves them standing up. It involves them doing something without gratification or uh, the title of allyship. It involves them in some ways losing power in a sense. It involves them stepping back. And I think that often the feminist conversation is around, I think men think it's about like having the poster and turning up to the protest. But I actually say to men, 
What's something that you could do in your own life to improve the experiences of women? What's something that you could do to improve yourself to mm. impr- to become a better feminist? Mm. And that's kind of my question. There would be a bunch of people listening right now, especially I imagine a whole bunch of young men who would hear that and say, hey, hold on, I've just finished school, gone through TAFE, gone through uni, whatever it might be, and I watched the chicks killing it. I watched the girls being the ones who were ducks, getting the highest marks, going on to whatever, which is what the data shows in Australia, that girls are achieving at a higher level. What are you talking about when you're talking about discrimination or um, things being unfair for women? From where I sit, kind of looks pretty good. How do you respond to that? I mean, I think that that's a really interesting measure of achievement and lifestyle and what success looks like. Obviously, that's a really narrow lens through which to look at Mm. it. But I would say you don't have to... I think those people... I understand where you're coming from. It may look like that. It may feel like that. But it doesn't actually mean that when you take a step back and look at society from a more expansive lens. And I think a lot of the time, one of the core arguments that men come up with to sort of rebut feminism or to combat this idea that I'm arguing is they say things like, but men are actually having violence perpetrated against them more than women are. Yes, by other men. And men are uh, incarcerated at higher rates than women. Yes, but because they're committing crimes, because they feel that they need to fit into this patriarchal society and these toxic ideals of masculinity that men have been conditioned to believe since birth, basically. Mm. Men also come up with the argument, and it's correct, that men suffer um, more severe sort of mental health implications and men are more likely to die by suicide than women. And I would say, yes, that is accurate, but that is because the way that men are conditioned to exist in our society currently is actually not beneficial to men. It's Mm. it's toxic and it's harmful and it's not men's fault, but it does involve men giving up something and changing something. And to those arguments, I say, yes, you do struggle in different ways to women. And I'm not saying that you don't, but what I am saying is that's not a rebuttal to feminism. It's an argument for feminism. Because Mm. when we look at the equality of the sexes, if we look at the equality of all people, and that's literally what feminism is arguing. It's not this demonic thing that the media makes it out to be. It's this idea that we are all having our lives improved through the belief that everyone's equal. And that's what I would say. Mm. You know, and one of the things I find in my in my own work outside of this podcast where we we do a whole lot of work at Future Women with men who are senior executives or run government departments and the like, talking to them about unconscious bias and what they can do to promote the interests of equality within their organisations. And often what will come back to us from them is a discussion about, but hold on, the, the complaints I'm getting a lot of the time are women complaining about other women. Mm. And I think it can be complex to understand for people that that is also patriarchy at play, right? Yeah. When we see, you know, I think there's this idea of choice feminism, which I absolutely deny and absolutely oppose. What's choice feminism? Choice feminism is essentially this idea that anything a woman does by virtue of the fact that she's a woman is a feminist act. Yeah. So it's this idea that someone like, for example, a good one would be Pauline Hanson. To say that because she's a senator and because she's in a position of power, anything she does is therefore feminist, when actually a lot of the decisions she makes are against women. Mm. They are they are reducing and limiting the success of women. Mm. I think that, that this is the force at play. I think a lot of the time women think that by rising through to executive positions and then sort of treating other women poorly, that they've hum- somehow succeeded and beaten the patriarchy at its own game. It's just yeah. not true. Often the women that rise to these positions and then lock the door as they go behind them, 
those are the women that are trying to beat patriarchy at its own game but end up feeding directly into it. They win because they feed into the system that oppresses them. Mm. I think that's really hard to understand and it seems really lofty, I think, but it's reality. It's what we see every day in our workplaces, in our friendship groups, in our extended families. We see women who have internalised misogyny And they then spread that onto other women and think that that's their own success. And it's just not. And I think that it's, again, conditioning. It's not their fault. Mm. But the question is, how do we have conversations that unpack that and challenge that thinking? Mm. And I I think it can be helpful sometimes to take this into the into the personal because when we talk in the abstract, it feels like we're talking about these badly behaved people and like we're not part of it too, right? So, you know, I've had experiences in my own life of you know, there's a small number of people who are chosen for some sort of impressive thing. I'm talking hypothetically, but we've all had the experience of whether it's at school or at uh, later in our studies or at work, or there's some sort of board or competition where you go, I want to be part of that. And it is so easy to fall into the trap of going, oh, okay, so there's seven spots and I can see there's five men and two women. Mm -hmm. So I've got to get me a woman spot. And so as soon as my brain does that, it creates this scarcity at play, right? Like I'm, I'm assuming there couldn't be seven women, for example. I'm assuming that there's a minority of women and there always will be. And that renders all the other women my competition. Yeah. And that's not going to lead to nice behaviour. No, and it's funny because we would rather just look at the two spots and have this competitive scarcity mindset than challenge the idea that there shouldn't be five men. Mm. And that's, that's the interesting part. We get this tunnel vision about getting the opportunity that we're already pigeonholed into. Yeah. And it's the same as this idea that there's constantly, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these things. I do love them. The things like, you know, the women in insert name industry award, women in business, women in law. Yeah. We are pigeonholed to separate categories at all times. And it's like, we're not viable for anything else. And the way that we're sort of umbrellaed under this really narrow lens. And I, I, I agree. I understand why we have this competitive mindset because we want to be the change and we want to get that spot because that's what success looks and feels like, especially under a system of capitalism. I think that the the girl boss era of feminism, mm. which sort of emerged in like in the mid 2010s, it taught us this idea that if we could have it all, and I say that in inverted quotations, because what does that really mean? It taught women that this new brand of feminism was to succeed in corporate environments while managing the mental load at home and the domestic yep. load and our families and friendship circles without a peep, without a complaint. It asked us to see feminism through the lens of doing everything and asking nothing in return of men. And I think that's where this mentality comes from, was we just see success through corporate capitalist measures as the way to achieve gender equality when actually we're just doing all of it and asking nothing. And that's not equality. It's quite the opposite. Mm. I think it's really interesting because I agree. I do the same thing every time I see a position available. But I think it's about stepping back and trying to question the five men, not compete with the two women. Mm. There's a part of me that thinks that girl boss sort of feminism was like girl power grown up, right? It was the Spice Girls generation that kind of went, yeah, right, this is this is the way for women to have power. It was a really sexualized power and there was an ownership there that I think was quite cool and progressive at the time, but it was, again, existing within a system that didn't give those women total freedom. It gave them freedom within very narrow bounds to be one of these five characters, right? And then those teenagers became the adults that were into the idea of girl boss feminism and what that looked like. And when you think about the Sheryl Sandbergs and the lean in and those kind of concepts, I remember finding that really appealing at the time, I was probably a bit, a bit young for it, I think, at the time. But 
hey, I would have been your age now, I think. So I and I do remember thinking, yeah, that's right. I, I had watched generations previously go, I've had kids or I'm going to have kids. And so I have to actively prepare for that by pulling back from my involvement in paid working life because I need to prepare for this. And I'd watched men push ahead. And it, it was quite attractive to go, okay, well, the solution to that is to not do the pullback. It's to just keep pushing forward. And then I had a baby and worked out that's quite hard. Yeah, sounds pretty hard. And they didn't tell us that bit. It terrifies me as someone without a baby to look at that and go, so many women believed that their productivity was the ultimate commodity Mm. and that to succeed you had to beat men at their own game, which is actually the greatest trick patriarchy ever taught any of us, really. Mm. Like I think that the girl boss mentality is exactly what we were talking about earlier with the executives that rise and lock the door behind them. Mm. And I think that we need to transform this idea that it's not about beating men at their own game. And it was really interesting. I just recently read Chanel Contos's book, Consent Laid Bare. And one of the points she speaks to is this idea of the word empowerment sort of being used as a buzzword yeah. when actually we should be seeking liberation because often empowerment looks like rising through a power structure that exists to oppress us and liberation mm. looks like breaking free from the power structure altogether. And I think that feminism at its most intersectional in the way that it should be moving forward where it's it's identifying that women are not one homogenous group and we should all be rising. It's this idea that we should challenge the fact that white women are not trying to increase their own privileges. We're trying to increase and improve the plight and the experience of all women. And mm. I think that the girl boss era saw white women succeed at the detriment of everyone else and just gain those privileges that white men already had. We need to challenge that notion and go back to basics and say, how do we move everyone one step forward? How do we move the needle a little bit? How do you make that happen when, for the majority of people, the current system suits them better? That's exactly right. In this country, that is. And I'm a white woman with privilege. I'm exactly the person I'm talking about because I'm succeeding right now. And I think it's so hard to step back and go, but I know I'm succeeding because I look like this in part. Mm. And I think that no one's really willing to talk about that. But I know that I'm an able-bodied, heterosexual white woman who has a lot of privilege. And for me, it's going to involve, if I'm invited to do a panel, saying, who else is on the panel? And if, you know, you do not have someone who is disabled or a woman of colour or non-binary, for example, just just to name a few forms of diversity that we should be championing, if they're not on the panel, it involves me giving up my spot. Mm. It involves me asking the question and having the hard conversation and giving up money or nomination or achievement in some capacity. And there will be times that my ego will really struggle with that. But that's the same. It's a human experience. And I think that we as a society really fail to have those conversations because we see ourselves not being centred as a form of oppression. I think a lot of white people do. And I think that we are so nervous to have these conversations and admit to anything because we think it makes us this bad person again. But it doesn't. What makes you the bad person is not thinking that you have privilege or recognising it, thinking that you earned it. Yes, I work hard. It doesn't mean it hasn't been easy in some ways for me. And I think the idea of equality and the, and progress is recognition, conversation and honesty. There's no point feeling guilt about the fact that I have privilege. You need to use it. I think it's it exists, it's there, and it's about how I use that in my work every day to improve someone else's experience. When we're talking about inclusive feminism, part of what makes me uncomfortable sometimes is we are still using the language of women 
more generally. And we're not talking about friends on the spectrum. We're not talking about trans women or people who are non-binary, for example, at least not with our explicit language all the time. How do we keep talking about gender inequality and the need to close pay gaps, oppression gaps, whatever it might be, eliminate sexual assault? How do we talk about that in a way that's inclusive Mm. when inevitably this began and will continue to be a woman's fight in many ways? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I've probably made that mistake 10 times during this conversation as well, but I completely agree. I think one of the ways is that we need to change the way that feminism is viewed as a concept and as a movement. Because I think that when we think of the word feminism, what the media, what a lot of the mainstream and and right-wing media especially has taught us is that it's a group of man-hating, angry women with burned bras and shaved heads, right? Mm. It's not. Feminism means you believe in equality of all people. That's what it means. And I think that we need to treat it and reclaim it in that way. Because I think that when we reclaim the language to mean what it fundamentally means, we can reposition the argument itself. Mm. Because right now, when we see, when we hear feminism and we think of that really stark imagery, it does just look like angry white women especially. But we need to re-centre the conversation to be about the equality of all people, not just white women, everyone. I think that's the first step. There's a long list of steps. But it does involve the women at the front of the feminist movement consistently correcting their language and consistently exactly what you're suggesting – being inclusive in our language, being inclusive in our conversations and being inclusive in our spaces. Mm. And I think one of the – I think one of the problems with feminism and the left at large is – this infighting that sees people who don't agree on one issue as like eliminating or criticising each other in really harmful ways, in ways that the right doesn't. Mm. And I find that in the left it's like obviously it's really important that if you have someone who's a trans-exclusionary radical feminist who isn't a feminist at all in my view, that's harmful, that's hateful and that's bigoted and we need to have a conversation about that. But we need to be better at, with the vast majority of people who are just trying to learn, to get informed, to get educated and to do better, we need to be better at having healthy conversations and saying, it's okay if you're going a bit slower in learning this aspect of, you know, what it means to be non-binary or what neurodivergence may look like. We need to be better um, at having conversations and at educating people without judging or criticising them. Mm. And I think it involves continuously trying to be better and not demonising ourselves or hating ourselves for screwing up on occasion, Mm. but at having these healthy conversations that continue to be inclusive and diverse. Mm. I've had the experience in a, in a few different uh, roles in the last decade probably of working with particularly younger women writers who got very scared to publish anything because saying something aloud meant that you could make an error and the pace at which especially the social media machine allows people to jump on one another and say, you've used the wrong phrasing, that's the wrong language, you've forgotten about this group, you haven't spoken in this way. When the criticism is not about education, the criticism is about showing someone they're wrong and calling them out. How do we move away from that kind of call-out culture, which I think is very much interlinked with cancel culture, and move closer to a place of we're all trying to get to the same point here 
how do I actually help someone get to where they need to be as opposed to shame them into a corner so they don't talk anymore? Yeah, absolutely. And I have this experience as well. Like every day you have to push through some fear to publish anything. Yeah. Every single day because you know people aren't going to agree with you. If you have some sort of take or stance that's of any opinion and if it's valuable, it's going to be critiqued more. Yeah. Um, And that's important. It's important that you're not censoring response and that you're not just standing on a soapbox. And I actually have the firm belief that a robust comment section can be better than the original material. Mm. But it's a really fine line between what is constructive feedback and what is hate and trolling. And depends on the topic as well. I think that we lack compassion. We also have this issue on social media, which is I think everyone gets in a sense that you can't read tone. You have no idea how someone's coming at something a lot of the time. And when there is pushback and when someone responds, often you can find that the person didn't intend for it to come across in the way that it has. I think that people forget that social media comment sections are the 1% of extremist views as well. And I forget it too. When I see a nasty comment, I think that the majority are thinking that about me and that I'm Mm. a horrible person and you do exactly what you claim and try to help others not to do, which is feel bad about themselves for taking a view and taking a stand. Yeah. I think the way that we get back to base is by remembering that social media is not where... It's where some change happens and it's a powerful tool for... Um, gaining traction on particular issues, but it's not where advocacy ends. It's not where mm. change ultimately happens. Um, and it's a really important public square. And I, as, as someone who's grown up with social media, it's all I've really known and it's where I've built a, a, a literal company from. Mm. So I'm thankful for it and I see its inherent value. But I think that until we can have better conversations about the way in which we criticise and the way in which we call in instead of calling out, we're never going to get anywhere. And I think that we just lose our humanity online because we have the anonymity of a screen. And I'm not saying anything new, but I think that people need to remember that often you need to determine on the spectrum of ignorance or hate where someone's sitting and know whether to engage or not. Because often we're reacting, not responding. And I find that there's often people in my life that I know I can't have a conversation with. I'm not going to waste my energy there. It's going to hurt both of us and devolve into personal attacks and a win-lose mindset. For me, it's always about finding the people that I know I can have a healthy conversation with and just challenge in some small way. My aim isn't to get you to agree with me. It's to get you to think. And I think we need to approach our social media comment sections in the same way. Thinking about how often I have conversations where my objective is to win. (laughs) I do it all the time. It's easy. It's an easy trap to fall into. And I think, you know, I've been reflecting on it a little bit um, and I I don't want to explore this topic necessarily, but the issue more broadly around the upcoming referendum on The Voice, for those who are intending to vote yes, there is a there is a conversation that's being had uh, that tells you the best way for you to advocate is not to wait for someone in the public eye to tell someone on television to tell the, the viewers how they should vote. That's not how people are going to respond. They're going to respond to neighbours and friends and family having positive conversations. And it's made me reflect that as someone who does a lot of that media work, I'm trained to, or I've trained myself to respond the way you should respond in the media, which is to win, which is to go on radio or to go on TV or to go on a podcast and be convincing enough with your argument to make it clear that you won the argument against the person that was on at that time. Not because your argument is a better argument, but because you were better at arguing than that person, right? Not that the position is is morally correct or, or, or arguable. And so when it comes to then shifting that conversation to be able to talk to friends and family, it's hard to get out of that really combative mindset and into a place where you're not just 
moralizing to somebody else. So to take that issue in a in a feminist context, there are going to be a whole bunch of people listening going, yeah, I do have someone in my life, whether it's a, a parent or a friend or a colleague who uses sexist commentary or says things that upset me or I'm advocating at work for a certain um, piece of progress towards equality and I'm not quite sure how to do it in a way that's not combative. I want to do it in a way that's actually going to get to a solution or change someone's mind. What advice would you have for that person? I would say, one, it's fair to be combative. I don't want to shame anyone for actually having that really sort of that nervous system activity where yeah. you feel upset because I think a lot of the time when we're talking to people we love about things that affect our humanity and directly impact us, it's hard not to react because it also destabilizes the love. Yeah. I, when my dad says something offensive, I'm like, what does that mean for our relationship when you're saying that about a woman on the street? Like, how can I love you and how can you love me when you say things like that? Like, it's mm. hard, right? Mm-hmm. It hurts. The thing I would say is, The media has positioned everything as a win-lose, as these polarising extremes, and there's only two options, and that's just not reality. Mm. Reality isn't, you know, immigration, yes, no, abortion, yes, no. It's not. We can actually have conversations with people where we say, why do you have that view? Yeah. Where has that come from? And I think often this is so problematic, and I'm really nervous that I've put it in the book, but I do reposition through the old Jenny Morrison lens with my dad and say, what if that was me? What if, what if that was me that I just walked past and you said that about? Mm. What if that was me at work and that thing happened to and you didn't step in? Mm. What if that was me um, making that claim on TV and you said, oh, she probably just regretted it? Mm. And I know that people think that that can be harmful and we shouldn't have to invoke ourselves to get empathy from the people in our lives and the men in our lives. But if it works, it works. And I'm willing to be pragmatic at all costs. I don't really care if people are judging me for that because I think that it has made huge leeway with a lot of the men in my family who are conservatives Mm. um, and who have never really approached these conversations. My dad has been radicalised socially and politically by having two daughters. Yeah. As awful as that might be in some people's minds, it means that he votes differently and he thinks differently now and ultimately that's what I want to achieve. For me, it's about sitting down with my dad when I can and saying... Why did you say that? Why did you do say that thing to your partner? Or why did you say that thing about that issue on TV? Or why did you post that on Facebook? I don't need you to change your behavior right this second, but I need you to be able to think about it and give me an answer mm. because I think that's how you get the cogs turning. So what I would say is you don't need to put everything on the line with this person and threaten the end of your relationship because I also think that completely cutting out people from our lives who disagree with us isn't helpful. We're never going to get anywhere. If they're harmful to you, do what you need to do. But every time I'm having a conversation, it's not about reactivity or attacking them personally. It's about asking what's beneath the surface level remark and saying, where did this come from and why? And can we think about it in this way instead? I don't need you to agree with me. I need you to think about it. I couldn't agree more. I think if if your entry point into feminism is someone in your life that you love... I'll take your entry point wherever it happens to be. Yes. Hey, Hannah, congratulations on your book and thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. That's it for the weekend briefing. If you would like to find out a bit more about Hannah Ferguson and what she says about the world, you can buy Bite Back, Feminism, Media, Politics and Our Power to Change It All at all good bookstores. 
That's it for the weekend briefing for another week and the end of our special series. I really hope that you've enjoyed it. If you did, maybe you could actually take the time and go and give us a sneaky five-star rating or, or leave a review. It will help other people find out about the briefing. The team will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines right to your headphones. Listener.